Hey everybody, it's Andy. Welcome or welcome back to the Decatur City Church Podcast. At the end of this episode, we would love it if you would take just a moment to download the Decatur City Church app where you can find access to all of our recent message content. And the app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend. But most importantly, I hope you enjoy the following presentation and I hope it inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Well, once again, just want to tell you thanks for being with us today. Um, It is so awesome to be uh, in this space together. Uh, Watching online is great. Um, I, um, but I have realized being in person, it just, it's just better. And I I know we have a lot of people watching online today. We got a lot of people from Buckhead watching online today. A lot of people from Decatur City watching online today. And maybe you're watching online because you didn't feel like you could, or maybe you've got your own health stuff going on that you just weren't able to. And we just want to tell you that we genuinely believe that you're with us and we're with you. Um, This is just great to be in this space right here though. So thanks for trusting us. Thanks for being with us still. Um, It's exciting to see what the future holds for sure. Uh, As I I mentioned, we're going to jump into the series. We're calling it The Last Resort. Uh, we're going to talk about these three interactions that people had with Jesus. Who, who they were at their end. They they were at. They, they really saw him as their last resort. So this isn't about uh, some resort in Cancun or some resort in Florida. Uh, although it is summer, so that does feel kind of nice. But no, this is about where do you go? Where do you go when you run out of options? Uh, I'm, I'm going to ask you to play along, though. Would you help me fill in? Help me finish this statement. You know the statement right here. Desperate times call for desperate measures. Yeah, you guys are on it. You came to play today. I like it. The Hawks took care of the Knicks. Now we're on to the 76ers. And you guys, I can feel, I can feel the energy in the room. Uh, and then where is, where's our boy with the one 76ers hat? I lost you, Jeff, but you can, you don't, we don't need that hat in here, by the way. That's of the, that's of the devil. And we're not about that. We're not about that life, all right? Yeah, desperate times call for desperate measures. What what does this line mean? What does it mean when you say that? When you say to someone, well, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures. What what it means is, is that there are times in life where the circumstances are so challenging Maybe it's in some sort of adverse circumstance that's in front of you. And there are actions that would have otherwise been rejected that people would have said, oh, you can't do that. That's outside of the social norm. But those actions all of a sudden become a necessity. They become the best option. They become the best choice because the desperate time called for a desperate measure. I, I, um, I was thinking about this statement a lot because of how much desperation we're going to find is wrapped up in these interactions that people had with Jesus. And I thought about this one particular time where I, I probably broke more laws in this hour period of time than I honestly ever have in my life. And this is not like my chance to confess. Um, this is just true. It's the reality of what happened. I think once you hear what happened, you'll go, oh, I get it. I got my own kind of story like that too. So um, I was in a season where um, uh, my wife and I had had, at this point, we had one kid 
and uh, Lucy, our daughter, was uh, about two, and Jenny was 39 weeks pregnant with our second child. And our first child, we, uh, we had an induction, okay? She was, uh, she was induced, and she was a week late, okay? So for those of you that are not fans of inductions or whatever, like, I don't need your judgment for sure is what I don't need. But... With the second child, we were, we kind of liked the induction because it kind of fit, you know, you scheduled it, you know, it's kind of nice, you know, the unpredictability of like when the baby's coming, like you're just like, oh, this is the date when it's happening. And since it had happened like that the first time, we thought it was going to happen like that the, the, the same way. And so 10 years ago, I'm sitting at breakfast at a, I was actually at a Cracker Barrel with this guy who was a professor at the graduate school that I went to. And he was, uh, my wife and I met in grad school in Dallas, Texas, and he was in Atlanta for a conference or something. And so we were getting together for breakfast. And I was in a season where um, I was really trying to, you know, how technology comes at just the, the it's, it's weight in our life. It's, it's control over our life. It comes and it goes. And so I was in one of those seasons where I was like, I'm trying to be present. So I had my phone not in front of me. I had, it, I had the ringer turned off, but I wasn't, I was just thinking, I wasn't thinking anything about what was happening. I was trying to be just in this conversation with this guy. And I was, th- you know, and I was even telling him, I'm like, man, we're so excited. We're having a baby tomorrow. We're not having a baby today. We're having a baby tomorrow because that's when Jenny is getting induced to have her second child. And he was like, man, I'm so excited about you guys growing families. Very excited. So cool. Really be praying for you guys. It's great. So finished the breakfast. I um, put my phone in my pocket, walk out to the car and look at my phone once I sat there and I had 17 missed phone calls from my wife. And and, and then I had like six text messages and the text messages, um, they evolved, I would say. (laughs) It started with just like a real sweet, um, hey babe, hope everything's cool with you. My water just broke. I'm in labor. Next text message. Hey, are you getting this? Next one, what are you doing? Next one, are you interested in living? And so I frantically drove home. She was like standing there, like sobbing, being like, the one day I needed you, where were you? You stood there at our wedding that day and gave me the Jack Nicholson. I will be on this wall. You want me on the wall, you need me. And you're not on the wall. What's going on? And so I was like, I got you, girl. I got you. Get in the car. Let's go. And I mean, just broke every law, speeding, break, running red, everything to try to get to the hospital. And not really, not for the sake of the baby, but for the sake of my own life, honestly. <laughs> because I just kept thinking, if she has this baby in this car, I don't, I don't know that we'll stay married. And I don't know that I'll live past this day. So I felt really, um, I felt like that was my moment where desperate times called for these desperate measures. De- desperation is, uh, I, I want to spend just a little bit of time talking about desperation today because desperation is, uh, it's not a fun feeling. You, you, you remember moments of your life when you felt desperate. Maybe you're in a season like that now. Maybe you can remember a season like that. Everybody, we all have, you know, thoughts about the future, imagining times where we will be desperate as well. Desperate for someone else, desperate for a situation, desperate in our careers, desperate in relationships, desperate for our own heart and soul. But I want to talk about desperation in light of in, in, in light of God. What does God think about desperation? What does he do with desperation? And, and I know maybe those of you that are, Uh, Jesus followers, maybe you have a time when you can remember, oh, I remember feeling 
Maybe you can remember feeling desperate with God. Those of you that aren't, maybe if you're not sure what you believe and you're still trying to figure faith out, maybe you could even relate though, I would imagine, because whatever you think about God, you probably have had a moment where you have felt desperate with him. And I wanna change the question just a second, just real simply and ask this one as well. When's the last time you felt desperate for God? Maybe for him to do something on your behalf, for him to come through in a way on your behalf, for him to, to answer a prayer the way you needed it answer, for him to, to change something, to shift something, to adjust something, to come through. It, it's, a, it's an agonizing emotion, an agonizing season. But what we're gonna see today is that God is, he, he's a God that actually responds really positively to desperation. He responds very positively to desperate people. What we're gonna do in this series is we're gonna show just three examples of people who were completely out of options. They had tried everything they knew to try and everything had been tried on them. It's, it's a three act play showcasing the types of people that Jesus rescued and the type of people that he still rescues today. All three of these interactions are out of one chapter in Mark's account of Jesus's life. They're all out of Mark 5. And the first little story, the first interaction is about, it's about a gentleman who was completely out of his mind, possessed with the, these demon spirits that inhabit this world. The, the next interaction Jesus had was with a lady who was completely exhausted. In fact, she was not only completely exhausted herself, but she had exhausted every so-called solution that the world had offered, and it had only made it worse. And then his third interaction, the one we're gonna look at today is, it's a religious leader, someone who had it all together, someone who was buttoned up, somebody who would have been a member of the country club, somebody who would have had wealth, who would have had stature, who would have had it all together, but had no doubt sought solutions to the problem that he was facing, solutions that were beyond this world. And Jesus responds personally to each one, just like I hope you find that he will respond to your desperation. Jesus sought out the first one. In the same way, he comes after those who pursue him and those who even never pursue him, not out of anger or disgust, but out of love and compassion. He proved that he was within reach in the second interaction, reminiscent of those who might know about him, but might feel like he's just beyond the grasp. And then in this third one for today, he's gonna prove, he's gonna prove that he's more personal than you could ever imagine. Even to those of you that, maybe you consider yourself religious, for those of you that don't, he's personal and he's powerful. And, and my hope in this series is that maybe you might identify with one of them. I wouldn't imagine that you would consider yourself someone who's completely out of your mind, but maybe you know what it feels like just to live recklessly without any boundaries, 
Maybe that's gotten you to the point where you are today and you don't exactly even know what to do, but you know you need something. Maybe you even know you need someone. Maybe you're gonna relate to this lady we're gonna talk about next week who just felt stained. She just felt worthless. But worse than that, she just felt broken. She just felt in need. Or maybe you can relate to this guy we're gonna talk about today. Who on the outside had it all together, but had a circumstance in his life that he couldn't fix, he couldn't solve. He didn't know what to do. And God, through Jesus, responds to his desperation. We're, we're gonna pick it up in Mark 5, verse 21. Here, here's the way this interaction begins. So Jesus had just gotten into a boat and crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake. So you can just, I want you to just get that image in your head that he had huge crowds following him at all times. And so he gets in this boat to almost get away a bit, crosses the lake onto the other side of the lake. And this large crowd heard that he was coming. They still gathered on the other side of the lake around him while he was by the lake. When one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. Now let's just stop for a second and talk about what this means to be a, a synagogue leader. We, we, we know a little bit about this profession from the first century. He, he wasn't a rabbi. He, he wasn't a priest. No, he was the one that ran the synagogue. He ran the operations of the synagogue. He, he was a leader. He, he, he ran a business in a sense. I mean, ministry in a way is like 51% ministry and 49% business, you know? There's a, there's a financial aspect to it just to keep things going, to be able to serve people really well. And this man had access to people. He had access to, to, to things, to wealth. He had access to, uh, to, to stature in society. But he was facing this hopeless crisis. And it's so interesting to see what he does. He, we, we don't even know what he believed about Jesus. But he... He knew enough about Jesus to know this seems like my only hope. And so he came and fell at Jesus's feet, talking about ain't too proud to beg. He just begs. I don't know what else to do. And with all earnestness, he begs that Jesus might intercede into his crisis and cure the problem that he's facing. I think a lot of you can relate to this problem. Maybe all of us can relate to this problem. I know this problem hits me in a really personal way. Here, here's his problem. He pleaded earnestly with Jesus, my little daughter is dying. Would you please come? And would you put your hands on her so that she will be healed and that she might live? We're gonna learn later on and one of the details that Mark gives us that this little daughter that Jairus had was 12 years old. My wife and I have a 12 year old. Maybe you can imagine loving a kid like that. Maybe you've had sick kids or sick grandkids or a niece or a nephew that struggled with help, but I can't even fathom. As much as I love our little 12 year old, to be at a place where I'm going, I don't know what else to do. I don't know where else to go. We've tried everything. 
We've called every doctor we know. We've tried every procedure we know. And so this man comes, begs to Jesus, my 12-year-old little daughter is dying. Would you please come? And would you grab her hand and would you heal her? And Jesus, Jesus went with him. <laughs> yes. Great news. Oh, I don't know what that means. That was not a sound effect for this message, nor should it be. Jesus went with him. He obliged. He said, got it. I'll come with you. Let's go. That might, you know what? I, I had some other stuff I was going to do today, but I'll come with you. And, and, and then the, the journey gets gets interrupted. And I, and I would imagine this bothered Jairus because Jairus is probably thinking, you know, he's a, you can imagine the state of mind that he's in. I don't have any other hope. I don't know what else to do. I know this one man that I've heard, he does stuff like this. He's got the power to heal. I've heard that he's done it before. And then I got to him. I found him in the middle of all the crowd. He made his way and he found him. And then Jesus uh, obliged and says, okay, I'll go. I'll do what you're asking me to do. I'll go with you to your house. So they set off. We don't know how far away it was. Maybe it was on the other side of town. Maybe it was just around the corner. But on the way, he gets interrupted by this, this lady. This lady who, interestingly enough, this lady had a problem, a medical condition that she had faced for 12 years. Now, this is just one little observation that, you know, as you just read through Mark 5 over and over and over again, you just pick up the the, the, the little note like this, like, oh, maybe this, there's something to this, that 12 years ago that Jairus and his wife had a baby filled with hope, filled with excitement. And this is life, that joy and suffering run on parallel tracks. And so 12 years ago, they had the joy of having a child, but also 12 years ago, this woman developed this medical issue that she could not solve, could not get solved. Everything she had tried, it only had made it worse. But God in his foresight somehow had allowed both of these two things to happen so that on the same day, 12 years later, that he might do something miraculous in both of their cases. Next week, we're gonna talk about the, this lady who comes to find Jesus. But for now, just suffice it to say, Jairus was not excited, I would imagine. We don't know if he knew this woman. We don't know if he knew who she was. We know Jairus's name. We don't even know this lady's name. But Jairus, I would guess, if I were in, her shoe, in his shoes, if I were in his Birkenstocks, I would have seen this as just an interruption. Hey, get in line. I got to him first. Over here going like, uh, hey, Jesus, could you uh, speed things up a bit? This is a bit of an emergency. Things are not exactly going well. I've already told you, she is dying. I'm kind of in a hurry. I'm kind of hustling. And it reminds me of that feeling that we all know all too well, that feeling of, God, I need you to move and I need you to move now. And it feels like you're getting distracted. Feels like you're delaying. And I don't have time for either one of those. And while Jesus was still speaking to this lady, look at what happens. Some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. They said, Jairus, we have a message for you. I don't know how to say this. I don't know how to tell you this, but Jairus, your daughter is dead. It's too late. 
She's already passed away. I know you were hoping to get to him and I know you were hoping to get him to your house. But at this point, I don't know why you would. She, she, she just, we just got word a few minutes ago that she's already dead. And then they asked this question that I, I would guess is a question. That I don't know if somebody's ever specifically asked it to you, but you've definitely thought about this question before. They look at Jairus and they say, Jairus, why, why, why bother? Why bother the teacher anymore? Have you ever felt like a bother to God? Have you ever felt like you had something that you were praying for and you were praying for and you were hoping for and you were believing for and then it felt like it was just over, it felt like the dream died, it felt like the ship had sailed, it felt like the deal already closed, it felt like the thing's already final. And then you just feel like, God, I want to keep asking you for it. I want to keep telling you about it. I want to keep begging you for it, but it would just feel like I'm just bothering you. And I don't want to feel that way. You probably have busier stuff to do. You probably are on to the next thing. I don't know why you didn't come through, but you didn't. And now it just feels like I'm bothering you. And maybe you felt like that. Here's the great news about this interaction that Jairus has with Jesus is Jesus doesn't seem the least bit bothered by Jairus. In fact, he just invites him, oh, come on. I know it seems over, but it, this doesn't mean it's over. In fact, overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe, Jairus. That same belief that drove you to your knees to be right here, don't, don't be afraid. I know it seems like all is over, but just continue to believe. And then there's this little note, which I don't exactly know what to do with, and we'll probably just move right past it for the sake of time. But the next verse, verse 37 says that Jesus did not let, yeah, you, uh, I didn't mean quite that fast, that Jesus did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of Jesus. So for some reason, Jesus goes, I don't, I, maybe it was he, these haters, you know, maybe it was these doubters. And he was like, I can't, I don't have time for that right now. And so he said, hey, Peter, James, John, you guys come with me. And so they did. And when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw this commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. Now this is just a, uh, I don't know, I find it to be an interesting historical tidbit that in this day, you would actually pay people, you would pay people to come and wail and mourn and cry at the death of someone. And it was almost a sign of stature. It was a sign of reputation. It was a, a, a level of wealth to be able to show off that you had the ability to hire multiple people to make a big to-do out of the death of this person that you loved. And so Jairus being a synagogue leader, as I've mentioned, he had some wealth, he had some stature. And so he had a number of people that were there wailing and crying and mourning and making this huge deal out of what was a huge deal that his daughter had died. But Jesus goes in, Jesus went in, said to them with this unusual question, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, the child's just asleep. And throughout the accounts we have of Jesus's life in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we, we see Jesus using this word commonly in this way, that it was always an interchange, it was an exchange, sleeping and death. I think it has to do with the way Jesus saw eternal life, the way Jesus saw the next life, that even when someone had died, Jesus is going, there's hope for a resurrection in the next life. And because of that, 
This person's not really dead. This person is just asleep. But in this case, they didn't pick this up. They didn't know all this. They didn't have all this context. They just thought Jesus was out of his mind. They thought he was talking crazy. They thought he just didn't believe them, that he didn't really know the situation. And so they laughed at him. They mocked him. They made fun of him. But Jesus was not gonna be denied by this. Jesus was not put aside by this. No, he actually put them out. He's, uh, Mark says after he puts all of them out, Jesus took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and they went in where the child was. And so you can just picture this scene. In that day, they would just bury people immediately because they didn't have ways to be able to, to do it in a way where you just didn't immediately start smelling something, honestly, as graphic as that might be. And so there were probably people already preparing for her burial. This sweet child laying there on this bed, lifeless, breathless, and Jesus walks into the room with the mother and the father. You can just imagine they're just, as soon as they see her, I'm sure just the tears flood back again. James and John and Peter were probably like, should we be here right now? This was like a very personal moment. So they were probably hanging on the back wall. You know how that feels when you're like, I, I don't know. I don't really know these people like this. They asked for Jesus. They didn't ask for us. We're just here because he asked us to be here. And typically we just do what he says to do. You know, we've learned that. And so we're just here. And then Jesus, I would guess, he gets down maybe at eye level with this little girl. And look at what he says. He, he, he took her by the hand and he says, Talitha kum, which in Aramaic means, little girl, I say to you, get up. So he just kind of kneels down by her and just takes her hand and in such a personable but powerful way says, Talitha, little girl, kum, get up. Now, I, I don't speak that language, okay? Some of you are wondering, like, is that how you pronounce it? I don't even know. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, okay? But here's what I do know, is that that was a tender phrase. That was not a, that was not a word that you would just throw out at someone. That's not like, a, oh, hey, girl, what's up, friend? It's not like that. No, this is a tender, something a father would have said to a daughter that he loves. And as I thought about that line, Talitha Kum, I just thought about being a dad, and I wonder how that might have landed with the father, how that might have landed with the dad who probably had called this girl that numerous times in her life. Think about all the moments. She's one year old, and she's just starting to walk. And she does what every little kid does, is trying to walk, you know, get wobbly, like getting her balance. And she probably fell from time to time as one-year-olds do. And this loving father probably said, just like Jesus said, Talitha, come, little girl, get up. Or maybe she was out playing at five or six years old on whatever the playground would have been in their day. And maybe a, another little kid would have knocked her down. Or maybe she was trying to do the swing or do the monkey bars and she had fallen. And the father probably saw her and probably said, just like any of you would have said, Talitha, little girl, come, get, get up. Or she's getting close to being a teenager. And so maybe like most teenagers do, maybe she had started sleeping late, you know, eight, nine, 10. And maybe it had gotten to the point where she was running late for school. 
And maybe you had one of those moments that you've had where you walk into the room and you go, hey, Talitha, come. Little girl, get up. You're gonna be late. You're gonna miss the bus. No, there wasn't buses then, but it's just the metaphor. It's just the idea of it. You get it. He probably used this tender little phrase. Tender in the sense that the address, little girl, was compassionate and kind and loving. Kum, that it was authoritative. It's a command. It's an imperative. I'm telling you, get up. And Jesus, the image of the invisible God with all the power in the universe under his control, tells this little girl, little girl, I say to you, get up. And I know this is hard to believe. I know you're thinking, well, how do we even know this happened? Mark wrote down this account. There, there, were, there were thousands of eyewitnesses that would have heard about this story that would have been a person away from this happening. There were hundreds of people that would have known this family. He was a prominent member of the society. People would have known. Did you hear what happened to Jairus' daughter? So this story, this amazing story of the power of Jesus reverberates even today. That, that immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. She just stands up, starts bouncing around the room. I'm sure the parents were beyond exuberant, were beyond shocked, were beyond excited. They probably were out of their mind. And at this, they were completely astonished. Mark's like, yeah, you guessed it. They were astonished. And so Jesus gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this, but he told them to give her something to eat, which I, I just love that about Jesus, you know? He's like, what are y'all looking at? Like, give this girl some Chick-fil-A. Like, come on. Do you not know what just happened? Think about it. You're 12. What would you want? Get her some nuggets. Come on. Get this girl something to eat. And then it just ends. That's the story. That's all we know about what happens with Jairus and this beautiful little girl that he loves so much. And so what I wanna do is I wanna just tease out a few things. I wanna just pull out a few things about the interaction that Jairus had with Jesus because maybe that might teach us something about how we should approach God. So let me just ask this simple question. What does this interaction with Jesus teach us about how we can approach God? Because I wouldn't imagine you have the exact same scenario, but maybe you have something similar. Maybe you're going to have something similar. Maybe you've got your own situation, your own desperation. And we're gonna find out that God is not bothered by your desperation. In fact, God, God isn't, he isn't turned off by your desperation. He's not bothered by your desperation. 
He's not anxious about your desperation. He's not biting his nails in heaven, pacing back and forth, wondering, oh my goodness, I didn't realize that things were that bad. I'm so sorry. Did anyone know this? How did we let this happen? This is crazy. I hate it. I'm so sorry. We'll try to figure out a game plan. No, he's not turned off at all by your desperation. In fact, this is what's interesting about God is that God has this reciprocal nature about himself that when you draw near to God, James, the brother of Jesus, tells us that God does what? God draws near to you. That when you return to God, God returns to you. That when you seek after God, guess what'll happen? You actually find him. And so when you come to him with a contrite spirit, a contrite heart, God loves it. He loves your desperation. And so if you feel desperate, or maybe if you feel like you can't feel desperate, Maybe you feel like you're too buttoned up to be desperate. I'm just telling you, God loves desperation. You can be desperate with God. God is not turned off by your desperation. No, somehow it moves him. He gives us the ability through our own desperation to be moved by him. Excuse me, to move him to action to actually respond to us out of our desperation. Not only is God not, he's not turned off by our desperation, but God isn't, he isn't put off by being your last resort. You you know what it feels, right? You know what it feels like to be somebody's last resort. You're like, so just curious, how many other people did you call before you called me? No, no, not many. I mean, a couple, you know, people are busy these days. Wow. Didn't realize everybody had so much going on, but it was just a few. You're like, Hey, it's okay. I don't mind being the last resort. Or maybe you do mind being the last resort. Or you know what it's like to be like, Hey, we tried five other restaurants and it didn't work out. We went to about six other doctors. We got about three other quotes and you really were the only one that would take us. You're the only one that would say yes. That might bother people on earth, but God's not bothered. He does not condemn Jairus for having tried every other option. No, he he seems to be okay with being the last resort. He doesn't have to be your last resort, but what I hope you'll find is that Jesus is a, he's a safe refuge. He's a safe refuge even if he's your last resort. Even if you have tried everything else and looked in every other place and tried, called every person you know and done everything you know to do and you're out of options and your desperation has increased, God's going, it's okay, you can still come to me. I'll, I'll be your last resort. But I, when you turn to me, what you're gonna find is that I'm a refuge, I'm a safe refuge for you. I love you even in the middle of it all. And then here's the last thing that I really take away from this amazing interaction that Jairus has with Jesus that just magnifies his power. What what I take away is this, is that ultimately desperation deepens your relationship. It deepens our relationship with God. And and this is the point of this. And this is my struggle. even Even as I was thinking through this and studying through this, I just thought, you know what? I don't know how many people are gonna walk away and go, wow, I hope God does that for me. I hope God moves on my behalf. Or maybe some of you, maybe you've already thrown it out because you're like, nah, that might've worked for him. But I prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. I was desperate and God did not respond. 
Maybe you've been single for a long time and you're like, I don't know how else to get more desperate, but it has not worked out for me. Maybe you have a marriage that ended or it was a second marriage or a third marriage. And you're like, it ain't just desperation that moves God because sometimes he just doesn't move. Sometimes he just doesn't do what we want him to do. Maybe you have been trying to have kids and it has not been working out and you've done everything you know to do. Maybe your career is at a point where you feel like, I don't know what else to do, but it is not working out. Let me just hopefully remind you that the the overarching point of this is not that God is going to come through every time you are desperate for him. The point is that the way he comes through it's just different. He, he doesn't just want to enhance your circumstance. This isn't all about God reordering your circumstances to do exactly for you what you think you want him to do. No, it's, it's about a relationship. He, he, he doesn't just wanna enhance the circumstances of your life, but he wants to deepen your relationship with him. And that's the best thing that could come out of it is that the more you knock, and the more you bang, and the more you cry out, and the more you reach out, and the more you get on your knees desperate for him, what he may or may not do is respond in the way you want him to respond. But what he 100% definitely will do is allow you to know him in a deeper way. And that is the best news possible that you might be able to know God in a way that you just wouldn't know him otherwise if you would allow yourself to go to him, maybe as your first response, maybe as your last resort. And that's the invitation in front of us today is would you be willing not to say no to all the other options? No, call, call find the best doctor you can find. Get the best attorney you can get. Apply to as many schools as you need to apply to. Get a second option. Get a third option. Get a rainy day plan. Do all the planning. Do everything you need to do. But would you be willing to go to your father in heaven, begging him, would you come through? Why? Well, not just to get him to do what you want him to do, but because he's just standing there with his arms open going, come, come on, come to me. You were made for me. You were made to be in a deep and intimate relationship with me. And the more desperate you are for me, the more you're gonna find me. And that, that's the best news. Is that sometimes the last resort is the place we should have just gone in the first place. So if you're in a crisis, go to him, beg him, get on your knees, scream about it, yell at him. He's not put off by it. If you're not in one, maybe you feel like you've kind of just trying to do it all on your own and kind of got it all under control. Maybe today you could come to the awareness that, hey, what I really need is you. Life just doesn't fulfill like I want it to and what I really need is you. Maybe someday you're gonna be in one and maybe you could take this and put it in your back pocket and go, I need to go read Mark 5 for myself because I can't forget the moment that Jesus looked at this little girl and said, Talitha, cum. He has all the power. He has all the power to heal, to fix, 
to make right. And he invites us to come to him with that, that longing, that passion, that desperation. I don't think you'll regret it. So I'd love to pray for us and I'd love to just invite you to pray as well. And maybe in your heart, in your soul, right where you are, that you might just tell him exactly what it is that you need him to do. Heavenly Father, um, I know we've got it just in our community of people. We've got people that need jobs and people that have career problems and people that can't figure out what their family should be doing. They can't figure out the relationship. Got the parents that are, just feels like it's falling apart. The child that's waiting on the transplant. God, and I just find it amazing that you still invite us to come to you. So God, I pray that people would experience that agonizing desperation as hard as it is. God, for those that feel like they've got it all together and they, uh, they just feel like, I, I don't know that I need to be desperate for him. Maybe today you'd break down a wall. You'd open up a door. You'd give them eyes to see that every breath is a gift that at any moment things could turn, that we could find you as a loving father that invites us to bring all of our stuff to you. We thank you that you have all the power for life and all the power over death. And we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.